Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks, the podcast from Knight Frank that looks at the big issues moving property markets, speaking to experts from around the world. I'm your host, Senior Property Analyst Anna Ward, and in this episode we'll be talking about what's at stake for the property sector as Brexit negotiations come to a head. I'm sure you've all seen the headlines over the past few days. Everything seems to be building up to a crescendo. But how are late Brexit talks impacting property decisions? Despite Boris Johnson telling the country last week to get ready for a no deal, Tosca Fund chief economist Savas Saviri believes an agreement will be reached. I speak to him about why he thinks the UK will exit the EU on friendly terms and how the country can reskill its workforce. So to kick off, we'll be touching on Savas's most recent report. So in that October report, Savas, you highlight a peaceful Brexit deal, Chinese currency strength and a Democrat win in the US election is all coming to head. Could you tell us a bit about how you think each of these will impact the UK economy? Of course, yes. Yeah. So let's begin with Brexit. We are now into the closing stages of what appear to be internal negotiations. I'm convinced that we're weeks away from agreement where the UK exits the European Union on friendly terms. On that happening or that being announced, the pound cannot fail to move sharply higher against the euro. So it's currently at one spot, one against the euro. I have no doubt that it will move sharply to 1.3. If I'm wrong, then pound is also mispriced. But in that instance, it's overvalued and it could quite easily tumble to parity, if not lower. And that's the important point. Everyone across Europe knows that asymmetry in currency. And if you're a Spanish hotelier, restaurateur, exporter in Germany, France, countries across Europe rely upon sterling being strong for their own self-interest because sterling strength means trade into the UK, more remittances. So to repeat, sterling is the wrong price. If I'm, when I'm proven right, you'll see it gap up to 1.3 against the, the euro, 1.6 against the dollar. And I'd, by way of illustration, just look at how sterling moved on the surprise announcement that we were advised to leave the European Union. It went down sharply by that sort of proportion. And it's been uh, undervalued for four years, effectively. And in terms of the other two events, which by pure coincidence are happening about the same time the, in the US, Biden will win and almost certainly have a Senate full of Democrats. How do you Not see the, the government reskilling the workforce, though, Savas, and as it's dealing with Brexit and coronavirus both at the same time? I mean, there's a lot of talk around data and cyber and so on. But what does that actually mean for someone that's, say, working in a shop or working at H&M? I mean, what would they actually be reskilling as, I suppose? Those who worked previously in restaurant retail outlets are perfectly transferable to e-commerce. They're not going to become coders. Remember, this, this country's had 23 years of rapid expansion in the graduate class. And those graduates, for the most part, have studied in, in sectors that are tech-based. And there's been a huge increase in demand for tech-based skills. So employment in those regards has have gone up. So this, this sort of reskilling idea, this is not the 1980s when we were confronted by coal miners and steel millers and shipyard workers who were made redundant and had skills that were completely unrefocusable. As unpleasant as the 80s were in terms of recessions, and also going back historically, go back to the 89 housing crash in the UK. What made that such a dramatic problem was that two things happened. Banks foreclosed. Let's go back to 89, 1991, 92, and the auctions, selling properties at discounts, which actually made the housing market weaker. Also, back in the 89-91 recession, interest rates remained stubbornly high. What you have this time around, no foreclosures, banks are forbearing, and you have interest rates which at zero are going to go nowhere. And by the way, if you believe that the pound will go up with a Brexit deal, that basically means that the bank will have even longer to keep interest rates where they are because a stronger pound is disinflationary. So this is incomparable to previous recessions. 
even to a late recession. And I would even challenge the notion that it's a, a sustainable recession. Once we reflect back on this in, in the years to come, we'll realise that it was a short, sharp shock. That was Savas Saveri, Chief Economist at Tosca Fund. Against this backdrop, Savas describes the potential trade deal between the UK and the EU, US elections and measures to curb unemployment. Knight Frank UK residential research head Tom Bill analyzes how much momentum the UK property market will have over the next few months. So Tom, obviously Savas has painted a picture there of an unprecedented situation of, of so many really historic events merging together all at once. And what does that mean for property? We've seen a, a strong summer, but what would you say lies ahead over the next few months? Uh, yeah, thank you, Anna. Yeah, I, I thought there was already quite a lot to think about for, for the property market. But yeah, there's, there's a lot bigger picture issues as well. The property market, I think everybody's probably familiar now with the story that, of a market that's really sort of sprung back into life since it reopened in the middle of May, much more quickly, much more dramatically than I think most people expected. And that really, I think, relates back to a market that's been pretty subdued five or six years against an ever-changing tax landscape and the uncertainty of Brexit. And so we've seen an unusually active summer. As summer's gone into autumn, we're seeing still a very active autumn. I think the slightly frenetic market we had over the summer is starting to calm down. However, what we've seen when we've looked at actually the number of deals, the number of exchanges that are happening in August and September, given the length of time it takes to obviously transact a property, still the, the, the majority, over two thirds of those exchanges happening in those two months were pre-lockdown deals. So the point is, yes, there's been all this activity, but that still hasn't necessarily really come through the system yet. So unless deals start to fall through at unusually high rates, then actually over the next six months, it's going to be a pretty active time for the market. Plus, you've got a stamp duty holiday, which is really driving activity, certainly below a million, million and a half pounds. And so there's a lot of momentum. There's an awful lot of momentum still in the market. And I think that might jar slightly with what's happening in, you know, as this second wave hits and the economic picture perhaps starts to become a little bit more shaky. The property market itself, I think there's going to be a slight mismatch. It'll be slightly out of step with what's happening in the economy, given the sort of the natural lag, the period of time it takes to buy a property. And what that ultimately means, I think, is that from here until March, the ability is for a pretty strong market. But in that time, do we have any advance on coronavirus? Do we have a vaccine? Do we get a treatment? And I think that's the sentiment shifter that would kind of allow that momentum to perhaps not completely you know, dissipate come Q2 next year and things to start to return towards some sort of sense of normality. Savas, I wondered, given everything you said, um, let's sort of bring it down to a practical level. If you're a dollar-denominated or euro-denominated buyer of a, of a London property and you, you want to transact over the next 12 months, what are your considerations around the timing? If you're uh, looking over 12 months, my advice would be don't hesitate because you've got this currency window that's open. You can climb into that window very affordably today in a way that you won't be able to do once the uncertainty around Brexit closes. And I've got to make very clear, I'm assuming, reasonably assuming, that there'll be a deal and the pound will go up. My motivation for that has been laid out over recent years. If you wind in what the euro's done and what Prime Central London property has done since before the referendum, you're looking at a 30% effective discount. And despite the rhetoric that's coming out of Brussels and London and will come and continue to do so, I think 30% is just, just a big number. And we got a, got some research out today, actually, that, that shows that it's COVID-19 and Brexit and everything, I suppose, combined together has changed like the landscape of the international buyer in London. 
And it's the French that are, this year have been the sort of biggest group of overseas buyers. And I think on their part, they're, they're thinking, well, to some extent, yes, they're tuning out the Brexit risks. It's as you know, we've, we've seen this story play out in 2019. They do see a 2% stamp duty surcharge coming down the line next April. And there are fewer buyers getting off long-haul flights as competition for them. And so there's some, there's some smart European money at the moment looking at London for precisely that reason, Italian, French, Spanish. And it's sort of starting to come through now in the numbers. The, the, the French are the largest group of overseas buyers. That's, that's not been the case in, in recent times. It's been mainland China. So, yeah, an interesting take on, on what's going on. Not sure it'll continue through into next year, but it's certainly 2020 for all its unique characteristics has thrown up something quite unusual in that respect. On the, on the issue of France, we're lucky we can collect data on the number of national insurance numbers that are issued by nation. There has been progressively since the referendum a fairly dramatic increase in the number of French nationals seeking UK NI numbers, equally dramatic increase in the number of Spaniards and Italians asking. So what you have effectively going forward is is a continuation of the net immigration from Europe into the UK. Yes, there'll be a visa system, but it will still see sizable inflows. We're talking about housing is about demand and supply. I have no concerns about supply, a shocking higher. And I have every confidence that the demand side will be boosted because we're looking at reasonably about a quarter of a million net immigration to the UK year by year going forward. These have to be accommodated in residential properties. That's a demand, it's a positive demand shock. And in terms of the long haul flights from China, that rivalry will return. This paralysis in, in international trade travel will end. And when it does, those Europeans who have been capitalising upon the lack of arriving Chinese will find that they are going to be rivaled by these Chinese. And it goes back to my point at the very beginning. Chinese have been buying assets around the world with an undervalued currency. Because as much as the pound is undervalued because of Brexit, the Chinese currency, the one, has been undervalued by Beijing on purpose. And Beijing has the power to flick that switch, and it will. So two switches are going to be flicked. One, the switch in the UK and Europe with the Brexit deal and the pound goes up. The other one will be flipped in Beijing, Beijing or the People's Bank of China, revaluing upwards its currency. And when you revalue your currency upwards, you become domestically wealthier. It can hardly be a bad thing for sending students to the UK to study at UK universities or buying assets over here. This is not conversation. We've seen all those things unfolding recently. It'll be supercharged with a stronger Chinese currency and a confidence in the UK going forward. We'll now move to some quick fire reactions from across our business, starting with Tom catching up with our London Nettings team. Tom speaks to Head of Prime Central London Nettings, David Mumby, and Super Prime Specialist, Stevie Wormsley, who suggests Brexit uncertainty is not having a major impact and that rents are unlikely to fall by more than 10% before returning to growth again. I suppose to begin with, Brexit's very much in the air at the moment. I wonder how much in the long list of considerations that tenants have at the moment, sort of how high up would you say Brexit is at the moment? To be honest with you, Tom, I, I, we're not finding any particular spike in concerns over Brexit when people are looking for a property. And I think the reason being it's been going on for so long. People have got their head around what it means, possibly what it doesn't mean. The uncertainty of the implications on prime central London and businesses. I think people have decided pretty much to get on with their lives. And we've been talking about Brexit for years. And I've got to be honest with you, as far as daily conversations go, it's not really a big consideration. It's just not raised at all. I mean, I, I sort of get that sense a little bit as well in the sales market. People have accepted that something will happen, some sort of deal will be done, rightly or wrongly, given what happened last year. And perhaps people are starting to tune it out a little bit as well. Is that what you're seeing, Stevie, at the top end? Although I suppose it's less of a factor generally. 
Yeah, it's interesting, actually, like you would think maybe people are thinking potentially, you know, what's going to be around the corner, you know, two, three years. And we've actually had more offers where people are locking themselves in. So more recently, people offering three years with no break clause. So I, I agree with Dave there. We're definitely not seeing any concerns with people there. Interesting. Why do you think those deals are now being done for the longer term? I think when I look at the people that have been offering, they were looking at buying previously and they've now decided to go down the rental route and perhaps see how kind of it plays out over the next two, three years and go down the rental route. But then you've got other people that are looking still to buy with potential to do works. So they know that they're going to be there for a while. So that hasn't been an issue for them. More more hedging of bets going on. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And Tom, I, I, I would say... You know, what we're not seeing now and we haven't seen for quite some time is the scaremongering headlines are from from the press. It seemed to be that when Brexit was a really hot topic, sort of 18 months or so ago when it was when it was rearing up again, it was all about you know front page news across all of the major publications and everywhere yeah. you looked was huge job losses in London. We're seeing job losses in London, but it's not because of Brexit, it's because of potential health scares. So we're not seeing that same level of concern. Yeah, makes, yeah. makes, makes complete sense, I suppose, doesn't it? The front page news is now obviously something else altogether. And um, if you're coming on to COVID-19, how would you summarise, how has that been affecting the market over 2020? And has that changed as we kind of get towards the end of the year? Tom, it's been absolutely fascinating, a fascinating period to work through. You know, it wasn't that long ago when we were considering worst case scenarios for central London, what that looked like, would that bring our market to a complete standstill? And we, no one knew, and I still have a, there's a massive degree of uncertainty across all of our offices in central London. But one thing for sure is it is feverishly busy. And there seems to be no sign of it abating at the moment. There are transactions of people within London moving for different lifestyle reasons within London. There are people moving from prime central London to outer London and beyond, all based around lifestyle and ability to work from home. So Stevie mentioned earlier about two to three year leases. We're seeing much more of that. And I think a degree of certainty is that people definitely are adapting their lifestyles for the short to medium term and giving themselves the flexibility. So COVID has had a huge impact on us, but actually to be where we are today is pretty remarkable. Yeah, but I suppose 2020 has been quite a remarkable year in so many ways. And we've seen rents fall by in prime central London. We're we're predicting sort of 9% decline over the course of this year, which the scope of decline we haven't seen since the global financial crisis. They're quite big numbers, aren't they? They are big numbers. They are big numbers, but there is very, very clear reasoning behind it. And I think the big driver was the uncertainty of what happened. Was there going to be an exodus of London from people within London? The the answer to that is nowhere near as much as people thought it was going to be. And the prime central London sales market has been much healthier than we ever would have thought. So the people on the marketplace thinking what's going to happen if they can't sell it they've been returning to the sales markets all of the short-term landlords and by that i mean the airbnb culture where that marketplace has been utterly decimated they all came onto the marketplace to rent with a, in a huge rush and that 
availability of stock has now percolated through the system and we're seeing a degree of normality. Every office I go into over the last few weeks, the stock levels are dropping consistently and I think we will return to a degree of normality. So it's been extraordinary, but I certainly don't see rents decreasing by more than about 10% before starting to return to growth again. Over in Dublin, I speak to Head of Ireland Research, John Ring, who says Dublin's property market continues to be supported by big tech, and he expects these companies' presence in the city will double over the next couple of years to 4 million square foot. In terms of Brexit, we haven't really seen a huge impact here in Dublin in terms of the office market or in terms of the residential market. So we have projected when Brexit, you know, the initial vote took place a number of years ago, you know, we were quite muted or quite conservative in terms of the impact in the Dublin market. And that's based on really London remaining the centre in, in financial terms across Europe. So in terms of our expectations, we didn't have a huge degree of you know, expectations that there'd be a, a lot of relocations coming to Dublin. And that certainly has proved true. We have seen a number of companies come over, such as just to take one sector, so DLA Piper, Dentons, Pinsett Masons have established bases in, in Dublin, which they probably wouldn't have done without Brexit. But, you know, in terms of the overall market, it's not a driver of the market in Dublin. It's more on the tech side that has been driving the market in Dublin. It's a real tech city, Dublin. So you've got the big companies and they've got very large footprints. And then you've a whole, such as Facebook, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, so these guys have huge presence in Dublin, and they've been the real driver of the market, as well as the next tier of tech companies. Okay, so when it comes to Brexit, in terms of financial companies moving across, sure we have seen a lot of announcements. Now, if you look at, we've done some research with our colleagues across Europe and Knight Frank, and Dublin has been identified as having the most relocation announcements, but that has not translated into take-up levels as of yet. So it's about excess 100 announcements for Dublin, as well in excess of places like that we thought here in Dublin, like Paris and perhaps Amsterdam or Frankfurt, that may have been a favoured destination. But actually what's proved true is Dublin has been number one. Now, we haven't seen an impact so far, but going forward in the event of a no-deal Brexit, we might see those companies that have announced Dublin as their preferred base post-Brexit then you might see them scale up, okay? So from that perspective, we haven't seen an impact, but that may change in the event of a no-deal Brexit. Now, so what cha- in, in the event of no-deal, is that more about because there'll be it'll be more difficult to freely go between the UK and Europe and they'll decide that they need a bigger presence then in Dublin? You're right. So there's a couple of different factors driving this. So there's regulatory purposes from a financial perspective. So in terms of the management of financial assets, you can't just channel assets through a location post-Brexit. You have to have the proper resources to have managing that. And those resources are, are people resources in terms of managing those assets. So you can't just have brass plated offices and money flowing through. You have to set up a correct amount of personnel and headcount to go along and manage those assets. So from that's on the financial perspective, Again, as I come back to on the tech side, is really a tech, Dublin's a real tech city. And you may see, you know, if there's uncertainty 
around, for example, work visas potentially, or some uncertainty to do with that, that you may see companies, and perhaps it has been somewhat of a factor that there's been a huge amount of expansion by companies in Dublin in the tech sector, that you may see them expand in Dublin if some uncertainty to do with visas. That's the two mechanisms that we see anyway. Yeah, okay. no, of course. And going back to your point on the office market, and just on you know on the ground, are you hearing any talk from U.S. big tech companies around like resizing or like reassessing uh, their presence in Dublin? We've actually seen the opposite, I think, in New York as a starting point. And I think that there's also you know U.S. tech companies on the hunt still for offices in London. But what are they doing in in Ireland? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, the big tech companies, the mega tech companies that I, I talked about earlier occupy about two and a half million square feet in Dublin. And with space already let and leased up and signed, we forecast that is expected to grow and will grow to 4.1 million square feet. So that's based on the construction where deals have already taken place. But the expansion has been quite phenomenal. And we expect that to continue when things revert to some sort of normality and there's a return to the office. In terms of the overall economic growth, in terms of the bigger picture part then, the economy has actually done okay this year. It's a two-tier economy, really, right? So the forecast for the end of the year is that the economy will contract by just 0.4%. At the start of the pandemic, it was expected to contract by excess 10%. And that's the multinationals and that U.S. multinationals in particular have a huge presence in Ireland. So different sectors like pharma and healthcare have done very well. And those sectors have grown and so of the tech companies i mean if you look at the the tech companies throughout this pandemic they've just got bigger their market capitalizations have increased significantly and if you look at employment loss in office-based sectors in the tech sector while there has been job losses say in the accommodation as in tourism and retail and that side of the economy has been impacted very hardly things are very difficult but actually in the office-based sector we haven't seen many jobs being shed. Of course, that has been helped by government assistance. But the hope is that, and I think you know, it's the same obviously in the UK, that we can push the economy and try and get through this difficult period as much as we can, and that those jobs are still there when there's a return to the office. I now speak with Head of Rural Research, Andrew Shirley. And I start off by asking him why tensions over the agriculture bill, which sets out the UK's plan for farming after Brexit, have not yet had a material impact on Knight Frank's farmland index. Yeah, great question. I mean, it's a really complicated mishmash of different issues. Personally, I think we will get some kind of trade deal. But for agriculture, a trade deal is important because we do export so much of our um, agricultural commodities to Europe. For example, if you look at the lamb trade, a third of the lamb meat produced in the UK is exported. 90% or so of that goes to the EU. So we can see that Europe is a very big market for us. And if tariffs are applied to that lamb meat, it could be devastating, particularly for the upland farming farming sector. So you've got two issues. You've got the trade and the exports, which we need to be sorted out. But there's also the subsidy system. About 60% or so of the income of UK agriculture comes from subsidy payments and obviously at the moment they are paid under the common agricultural policy put in place by the European Union but you know as of now those payments will um, have to come 
from a British agricultural subsidy system, which is part of the agricultural bill. And there's no guarantee, you know, particularly with the coronavirus epidemic, that there was going to be as much in the pot to pay farmers. So a lot of producers who've been relying on subsidy payments basically to stay stay afloat. It's going to be a very difficult time for them. But so far, we haven't actually seen this reflected in the um, land market, according to the Knight Frank Farmland Index. You know, the average value of farmland in England and Wales rose by about a percent in the third quarter of 2020. So, so far, the land market is staying pretty resilient. And anything further down the track that will be of concern? When will we find out on the subsidy payment side, do you think? Are there any indications sort of as to when that might come to a head? Well, the government has already outlined how it would like to replace subsidy payments to farmers. At the current time, you know, farmers will get an amount of money based on the acreage that they farm, but that is going to change and the payments will be very much based on public money for public goods. So you know, based on things like improving the environment, soil, helping mitigate climate change and species diversification, that kind of thing. But we still don't have the details of how the scheme will be administered. And although the government has committed to broadly about the same amount of money up until the end of this parliament that has come from you know, the EU schemes, we don't know how that money will be distributed. So it's not certain that individual farmers will be receiving the same amount of support they've been receiving in the past. And, you know, I would go as far as to say that a lot of them will be getting a lot, a lot less. So this is going to create a lot of issues for individual farmers as the current subsidy system is run down and replaced by, you know, these new environmental type payments. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information.